Looking at the projections by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the sustainable development scenarios from the International Energy Agency, it is clear that capturing carbon dioxide from either the atmosphere or from the sources of the emissions themselves is an important part of limiting global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees. Despite this, we have not seen that much progress in carbon capture, with only a few large-scale projects such as the Boundary Dam coal-fired plant in Canada which is fitted with carbon capture and storage technology. More advanced ideas, such as direct air carbon capture and storage, or using algae to capture carbon dioxide are also possible, but are currently being used only at a pilot scale. Today, we are talking to Sebastian Escanguis, a chemical engineer and consultant at Enea Consulting, who advises industrial companies as to how to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Carbon dioxide is already used as a feedstock in many industrial processes, but this is not normally produced from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or indeed waste carbon dioxide. According to Sebastian, there is significant potential to use carbon dioxide that would have been released into the atmosphere in industrial processes before it is emitted. We will be discussing industrial uses of carbon dioxide including synthetic fuels, how much they cost and how to make them cheaper. I am Paul David Evans, and this is the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. Good morning, Sebastian Escargues. Welcome to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul Evans. Before we really start talking about the, the main subject here, I want to find out a bit more about you. How did you get into energy, and particularly how did you get into carbon capture and utilization? Sure. I'm a chemical engineer uh, by background. So I did my bachelor's in chemical engineering at Queen's in Canada. And I actually worked in oil and gas for five years at Imperial Oil, which is the uh, Canadian subsidiary of uh, ExxonMobil. So I was a uh, process engineer there uh, working on capital projects for refineries and specifically worked at a refinery for two years where I actually uh, had to uh, do monitoring and reporting on emissions, uh, specifically on the refinery's flare. And that's where I really uh, got into CO2 utilization, the importance of capturing it as well, reducing emissions. And especially on the utilization piece, um, I was very interested uh, pretty early on, um, having worked on a, a large uh, design project at school, looking at an innovative fuel cell concept for capturing CO2 uh, and then storing it. And then now I work at uh, NAI Consulting where I'm a manager. Uh, so I've been here for three years and I work on CCUS, so carbon capture, utilization and storage projects and studies uh, for various clients, uh, again, notably oil and gas companies, but more and more industrial clients that are looking to do something with the CO2 that they produce. I see. Okay, sure. So it's true, of course, that basically every think tank and research organization says that if we're going to to reach a two degree target or 1.5 degree, we're going to need a lot of carbon capture and storage. Yeah. Um, but despite this, we're not actually seeing that much movement on carbon capture and storage. One of the reasons for this, of course, is that there is not much incentive to capture carbon. That's right. Yeah. And clearly, there would be more incentive if we can if we can use the carbon dioxide for something. Can you tell me what are the uses of carbon dioxide? Yeah, so that that's a really good point. Um, and as as we talked about, we're uh, going to be talking about CCUS, so utilization and storage. Over the last uh, few decades, uh, when this uh, 
uh, sector has started ramping up and research and it has ramped up. A lot of the focus has been on the S part, so the storage part, really just how can we get rid of the CO2, hide it essentially, and make sure it doesn't get into the atmosphere. But really what is interesting to me and I think to the world and in light of the uh, uh, IPCC's uh, recommendations for a two-degree scenario, as you mentioned, to integrate CCUS is essentially that U piece. So how do we actually then take that CO2 and make it into something usable, valuable, especially since we are working within a, a capitalist framework that depends a lot on market forces, prices, supply and demand. Um, so it's going to be a lot more useful to be able to do something with the CO2 uh, than store it. Just to start off, we can take the CO2 and convert it actually into quite a few different uh, products uh, ranging from fuels uh, that we can substitute for, uh, into the fuels that we already use today that are fossil-based, right up to very special chemicals, uh, cement, uh, and other products that have more niche applications. What about things like agriculture and uh, drinks? Yeah, so that's a good point too. So CO2 is already used widespread in, in industry, in the bottling and, and drinks uh, industries. So Coke or any kind of carbonated beverage, they actually buy very high purity CO2 and uh, use it to carbonate the drinks as the last step before bottling. Um, and then uh, in agriculture, so the one of the main uh, uses is uh, as a... Uh, feedstock for producing uh, fertilizer, so urea, uh, which is a nitrogen-based uh, fertilizer. Uh, so in the Bosch process, which combines uh, CO2 and, and ammonia to, to produce the fertilizer. I think it's useful to talk about the basic economics of carbon dioxide before yeah. we talk about which of the uses are the most have the most potential. So where does carbon dioxide come from that's used in industry and how much does it cost? Yeah, so currently, as I mentioned uh, with the uh, the Coke example, uh, very high purity CO2 is produced um, by chemical companies that specialize in gas separation purification like Air Liquide, uh, like Air Products, uh, for example. They typically uh, produce it, separating it from water or even air potentially. Um, but then it's a very expensive process that requires a lot of energy input that is then sold to uh, a user, uh, maybe 2,000 euros a, a ton, so pretty, pretty expensive. Um, yeah, so pure li liquid transported uh, carbon dioxide, and it could go, go down even further, but that's because we're, we're taking it from a source that isn't naturally occurring necessarily, that needs to go through a, a process to separate it out uh, artificially. So the interest really in CCUS is trying to find sources where CO2 uh, is, is inherent where it's going to be produced anyways uh, for free and might be a, a co-product that we would just reject into the atmosphere. So we're looking at things like emissions, flue gases from a lot of industrial processes that would just emit that CO2 into the atmosphere otherwise. So when we work on these projects, those are the sources that we're, we're targeting actually to make it economical. Therefore, something like CO2 from a, a coal or indeed a gas-fired power plant, is it not pure enough to be used in industrial processes? No, that's right. So that's another good point. Uh, in industry, uh, a lot of the, the what we call the flue gases, so coming out of uh, what we call a, a stack, a lot of large plants have, have a large flue gas stack, which is those huge uh, towers, looks like a huge pipe chimney 
that you'd see next to a coal plant, a steel plant, um, a refinery, typically painted uh, red and white because uh, it's the biggest thing needs to be seen uh, to shoot the emissions that they produce really high up into the atmosphere. And those emissions include a lot of CO2 typically because um, those different industries uh, burn uh, fuel in their furnaces, in their boilers, and then produce CO2 as a combustion product. But with that CO2 combustion product, you have a lot of other impurities such as uh, CO, so carbon monoxide, which is the uh, uncombusted uh, or uh, um, incomplete combustion product uh, from a combustion process. Then you also have particulate matter, and then you have uh, what we call uh, SOX and NOx, so nitrous oxide and uh, sulfur oxides. That sulfur oxides, especially, that cause things like acid rain, um, form H2S, which is uh, hydrogen sulfide in the atmosphere. Um, so n- things that are controlled, actually, and regulated uh, in most countries, especially in the West. However, we still shoot those up through our the, the big flue gas stacks uh, with the CO2. So we can't just take the raw flue gas stack gas and put it into uh, our Coke bottle. So there are a lot of absorption capture processes that we'll probably get into, um, which is the CC part, so the carbon capture, that make sure that we can actually extract the CO2 to then use it uh, in the applications uh, we'll be talking about today. The total emissions, the total carbon dioxide emissions globally, annually, is about... 33 gigatons, something like that. So how large is the total use of carbon dioxide? So not a lot, actually. Um, uh, There's a lot of CO2 that we we shoot up into the air um, in in mainly those industrial processes where we actually uh, don't uh, control it for using it um, in different purposes. And currently CO2 that is captured, it's around uh, 30 megatons uh, per year. Um, and, and captured and either stored or somewhat reused. The stuff that's actually reused is actually a small fraction of that, um, less than um, a few hundred uh, kilotons per year. Given that this is only a small percentage of the carbon that is being emitted into the atmosphere every yeah. year, what can be done to increase that? Or well, let's just say, actually, which of the uses have the most potential to, to grow in the future? Yeah, so from the work we've done here at NAO with uh, many different clients, uh, we see that the, at least in the short term, the most likely market segment that will allow CO2 use to flourish is going to be market segments where we already have products that are fossil-based that can be substituted. And especially with clients that emit the CO2 that produce these products, typically uh, bit large industrial clients, oil and gas uh, actors, they produce things like fuels and chemical products that are widely used around the world in many different segments. And so that makes the most sense to try to attack that market and substitute the existing uh, fossil-based products that are there today. So a a really important market segment that's starting to grow in CO2-based products is CO2-based fuels. So synthetic fuels that are based from CO2. Hydrocarbon fuels, yeah. So that's it's yeah, the first step because you do make fuels. a good point that we would be producing still hydrocarbon-based fuels from that CO2 that we would capture, but then replacing the hydrocarbon fuel that we would use otherwise that would have been produced from crude oil or gas. Of course, carbon dioxide is relatively thermodynamically stable, which means that yeah. you need to add energy to it 
to make it into something which has useful energy in it. Mm -hmm. Also, CO2 doesn't have any hydrogen in, so the hydrogen needs yeah. to come from somewhere. Right. So first of all, I would imagine, of course, the hydrogen is where the energy comes from. Um, but where does the hydrogen itself come from? Right, so that's a very key piece when we talk about CO2 utilization to be converted into other products. What's the cheapest source for hydrogen or the most CO2 effective source for hydrogen? Currently, the easiest, quote unquote, uh, but still with a lot of work to be done, um, but most direct way to get hydrogen is through electrolysis, which is essentially the splitting of a water molecule using an energy source, electricity, uh, to separate the hydrogen and oxygen molecules and then get pure dihydrogen H2 and then pure dioxygen O2. And that hydrogen we can then combine with the CO2 in many different processes to then produce uh, the fuels or the products that I was talking about. So the source of that hydrogen... Uh, is based on an electrical source when we're talking about electrolysis and the whole production pathway can only be considered to be uh, low emissions if the source of the electricity is obviously green. And then beyond the electrolysis, uh, the current way to produce hydrogen uh, that's widely used across the world is what's called steam methane reforming. And that uses natural gas with a whole lot of steam at relatively high temperature, which obviously takes a lot of energy to get up to temperature, to then uh, take that CH4, so methane molecule, combine it with the H2O, and separate it out to produce hydrogen. And then from these processes, is it possible to make complex hydrocarbon chains which might be useful for you know, aviation fuels and, and vehicle yeah. fuels? So not alone. So if we first have the first block of the electrolysis produces the hydrogen, um, and then we would have another process. Uh, so there's different types of processes, such as reverse water gas shift, co-electrolysis, that could then produce either methane or what we call syngas, which is a combination of carbon monoxide and hydrogen. And then those are precursors to a subsequent step, which would be, for example, Fischer-Tropsch, uh, which is a, a catalyzed reaction using uh, different types of metals that could then produce more complex hydrocarbon chains where we have multiple carbon atoms hooking up and producing molecules that resemble more uh, your gas molecule, diesel molecule, jet fuel, kerosene molecule. So I suppose the most important question now is, is how much does, does this cost relative to a hydrocarbon fuel that comes from the ground? It still costs uh, quite a bit, and there's a few reasons for that. So obviously, the technological maturity um, isn't, nowhere, isn't anywhere near uh, how mature our traditional refining pathways for producing hydrocarbon-based jet fuel, for example, is. So there's a lot of continuous development work that needs to be done, and then industrialization and deployment work that is going to take a lot of money, a lot of investment uh, up front. And then the other issue is the source of the electricity that we're using to, say, produce the hydrogen that I talked about in our electrolysis process. If we want our whole process to be green, we need to get renewable energy. And in many parts of the world, still, renewable energy isn't widely deployed and it's still very expensive. So those are kind of the main operating costs. And then beyond that, we still rely on a CO2 price, a CO2 market price to get the final product price of our CO2-based product down to be competitive with traditional fuels, jet fuel that you, you mentioned. 
there are starting to be a couple uh, basic fuels and products that could be competitive in some situations um, with a reasonable CO2 price. So we're talking about under 100 euros per ton of CO2. So just to put that in perspective today on the European uh, emissions exchange trading system, which is the uh, open market for trading CO2, we're at about 25 euros per ton. So 100 might sound like a lot more than that, but it's actually within uh, reasonable production projections that are made by a lot of uh, companies even and organizations such as the International Energy Agency, as well as governments that use projections in that range for their uh, environmental and climate change planning within the next decade. Having said that, then there are a lot of other CO2 utilization pathways uh, that are being looked at that we've looked at as well where a CO2 price of at least a few hundred, if not thousand euros per ton of CO2, at least in current market conditions, would be required to make it competitive uh, against existing fossil fuel-based uh, products. Do you know any examples of companies that are creating synthetic fuels? Yeah, so there's uh, there's quite a few. So I already mentioned in, in uh, refining, I mean, there's, there's many refiners, uh, oil and gas companies that are looking into it, but we mainly look at the technology developers. So the one of the big ones that installed a, uh, one of the, the world's first industrial scale uh, methanol production unit um, is CRI, Carbon Recycling International, which uh, built a unit in Iceland to capture the flue gas uh, from a geothermal power generating station. As, as we know in Iceland, they have quite a bit of volcanic activity and generate most of their energy from geothermal uh, uh, energy from the ground. And so the flue gas from that generating station is then captured and the CO2 within it um, is taken to produce methanol uh, in what's called a hydrogenation process where we add uh, hydrogen to the CO2 to then produce methanol that could actually be substituted for a part of the gasoline that's used. So I think they they produce about uh, 5 million liters of methanol a year. So that w they started up about uh, 10 years ago almost now um, and have uh, partnerships with uh, some car companies as well to distribute their methanol and substitute the gasoline. So that's one, one of the first examples. And another uh, good example that we've been looking at a lot lately uh, is Sunfire, which is uh, a, a company that is developing industrial-scale jet fuel diesel production with the Fischer-Tropsch process. And then how do the economics of this project work? The, let's say particularly the one in Iceland. Uh, so it's pretty simple. As I mentioned, the, the CO2 comes from the, the, the flue gas from the geothermal plant. So it's free for, for this production plant. And then the geothermal plant actually gets credits for uh, not emitting that CO2, again, based on that market price of the CO2, which is currently at around 25 euros yeah. per ton. So they're avoiding emissions that they would have had to pay for through this uh, emissions trading scheme. Uh, and then the initial upfront costs uh, were, were obviously sunk 10 years ago, um, the investment costs. Uh, and then the operating costs are, are relatively low. So you're just talking about essentially the energy costs uh, required to produce the hydrogen and then um, carry out the hydro hydrogenation process to produce the methanol. Are the economics of this project specific to the, the fact that it's geothermal? Yeah, exactly. So, so it's very dependent on what the source of the CO2 is and the fact that you're right next to that source, so the geothermal plant. 
and that you're actually helping them avoid their emissions. And then the last thing uh, at the outlet of all this is that there is a market for it. So they're taking that methanol. They have an offtake agreement with uh, distributors um, and partnerships with car companies that will then uh, integrate this into some of their fueling stations and substitute part of the gasoline that they would have otherwise bought and imported um, onto those sites in, in Iceland. Clearly there's another type of carbon neutral fuel that we use quite frequently and these biofuels. Yeah. So, I mean, for example, in, in Europe, we have, you know, five, ten percent of vehicle fuels quite yeah. quite frequently they are biofuels. Yeah. So what's the trade-off with using synthetic fuels versus biofuels? Right. So the interest with biofuels is that we're actually in a closed cycle and have net zero emissions because the CE uh, carbon dioxide that we'd be releasing in the combustion process from having burned the, the biofuel is going to go back into the biomass, uh, such as the trees, that we would have used to produce uh, synthetic uh, diesel, biodiesel, or bioethanol. Okay, that's very interesting. But I, I'm still, I want to know why we don't use more synthetic fuels now. Right, so if we go back to the uh, biofuel example, that's a resource that is readily available and there's a lot of technologies that have been developed to use it. The thing about synthetic fuels based off of CO2 is that it's based on CO2 that we capture and specifically from industrial processes, the flue gases that I mentioned or that we have to extract from uh, water, for example. So it's a lot more costly. Um, and if we don't have the right technologies, or at least the most economic technologies to capture and then do something with that CO2, uh, then that technology is not going to be developed. Then the other use that we mentioned before was in petrochemicals. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose this is an interesting use because petrochemicals have a, a high market value relative to, relative to fuels and yeah, relative to building materials and other things like that. So what's the, um, what are the main uses of carbon dioxide in petrochemicals? So there are different technology pathways that have been developed to use CO2 and produce many chemical precursors. Uh, a big one is what we call polyols, which are uh, precursors to different types of polymers, polycarbonates. And these are very, very highly valued, um, up to many thousand euros per tonne. Then we have a lot of other basic chemicals that are used in industry, such as formaldehyde, acetic acid, acetone, that can be actually produced with CO2. The technologies aren't very developed yet. However, there is a, a clear high-value market for those, and industry does demand these products. And what we'll see is that more and more over the next few years, there will be this industrial demand for what we call green chemistry, to reduce the carbon footprint of the products that they're making, which starts with the chemical feedstocks and intermediates that they use to produce all the products that we enjoy in our consumer society today, ranging from different polymers, plastics, uh, rubbers, vinyls, solvents, adhesives, everything that you see around you uh, when you go about your, your daily business. Come, uh, most of it comes from chemicals industries. If these products are worth so much, why is it that uh, we can't use carbon dioxide capture from the atmosphere today? So it, it com comes down to, again, uh, the state of the development of the technology and joining the market that demands these products 
to the sources. So where do we get our CO2 from? Uh, going back to the example of the uh, Georgiola plant in Iceland, which is the, the CRI plant that produces methanol, they were right next to a, a geothermal plant that already had CO2 uh, being produced for free. And then their market, which is a vehicle fuels market where the methanol could substitute uh, gasoline, is also right there next to them. Whereas chemicals, and niche chemicals especially, um, are very localized, very specialized, and you would have to transport the CO2, first absorb it from somewhere, um, and then use it in technological processes that aren't very mature and that currently costs uh, a lot of money up front to develop. Uh, so there are a couple of companies in the world that are doing direct air carbon capture and storage, so particularly there's Climeworks in Switzerland and there's Carbon Engineering in Canada and the United States. And, um, you know, some people are, are really very bullish about this technology, particularly in the production of synthetic fuels or just in using it for, I think Climeworks use it just for, for greenhouses and for fizzy drinks. So um, what's your opinion of this technology, particularly in terms of the economics and particularly in terms of the economics compared with other technologies? Right. So I think it's a very interesting idea. And I mean, I'm an engineer by background, so I love uh, technological solutions to solve all the world's problems like this. And we could imagine large direct air capture units that would just suck out all the CO2 that we've emitted over the past 200 years to then produce CO2 based products and then solve all our climate change woes. But unfortunately, I, I don't believe that we're anywhere near uh, the large scale of that kind of uh, technology that yeah. would be necessary to even make a dent in our global emissions. There's a few problems that I, that I see. So for the first off is economics um, and, and the maturity of the technology. We're, we're still a long ways off from having uh, industrial uh, scale units that are economically viable. The technologies are being developed, but there's still a lot of R&D money that needs to go into it. Uh, you mentioned carbon engineering. Uh, for example, I, I believe Bill Gates is one of the, the large investors. He's very interested in it. He loves kind of innovative, high-tech solutions, and he's putting a lot of money into it. Uh, but I still think they're, they're quite a ways off from getting to uh, an industrial-scale unit that could be massively deployed. And then the other issue I see is more from a, uh, a policy approach to climate change and kind of the timelines that we're dealing with. Um, capturing CO2 directly from the air is kind of a last resort in my mind. The CO2 has already been emitted. It's already in the atmosphere, and then we're going to go and try to capture it, try to suck it up and, and turn it into something useful. Really, what I believe is, is the, the best approach and, and where we could be most effective is, first of all, reducing our emissions in the first place, not consuming as, as much so that we don't have industries that are multiplying and then producing more emissions. So just reducing our consumption is obviously uh, the, the main lever. But then after that, with all the, the, the products uh, that we are producing um, and, and the industries and, and the plants that we do have and the emissions they are producing today, the next step is then capturing the CO2 from those emissions uh, that they are producing from the flue gas stacks that I mentioned, for example. And yeah, I think we need to tackle that first because the, those emissions are already there and being produced. And the technologies for capturing and absorbing the CO2 have been developed over the last few decades. They're a lot more mature than the direct air capture. And we can stop the emissions from being spewed into the atmosphere um, before we actually have to deal with them afterwards. And then the last step is is the direct air capture. So once they've been spewed into the atmosphere is, is then taking them and trying to do something with them. 
Yeah. So it's it's in, in effect much cheaper to to capture carbon at source. At, at this yeah, at this point uh, it is, and so you you make a good point too when you say at source. Um, carbons, carbon um, emissions from a plant are very concentrated and that's very important because that reduces the cost and the energy input that we need to then extract that CO2 separated out from all the other pollutants that, that we had talked about before and then be able to do something with it. Whereas once it's in the atmosphere, it's quite dispersed uh, and we have to have the, these large suction units to then concentrate it again to be able to come up with large enough quantities that would be interesting for creating a high-value CO2-based product. I suppose the real crux of this issue is just getting the, the economics to work. And of course, there are, there are some policies that can be implemented in order to do this. So this should be done, of course, both from a supply side, sort of improving the technology, and also from a demand side, which is making the, the price of the product, the refined CO2, much higher. What are the policies that you think are the most that make the most sense to encourage the uptake of carbon capture and utilization technologies? So I think we all know the two main mechanisms that drive those economics that you're talking about on the supply side. So they are a carbon tax, a CO2 tax, and a carbon cap and trade scheme. Uh, so the CO2 tax being essentially just a price on carbon that's fixed. Uh, where a polluter that emits carbon into the atmosphere would pay a, a certain amount and then the government takes that money uh, and uses it for something. And then the other scheme, which is carbon cap and trade, where we actually set total emissions that uh, an industry or a country can emit and then anything over that uh, the polluters have to pay again based on a market price that floats. So that's what we have in, in Europe essentially is an, an open market where we trade emissions quotas between uh, industries, between uh, different sectors uh, to make sure that we're under a total uh, cap. So that, that one's interesting because it's very linked to climate change and we can actually uh, set ambitious targets for reducing emissions. Um, but a fixed carbon tax um, is also very interesting for industry because they can actually build it into their economic models, account for it, and then potentially even uh, use money that they would be saving that they could predict that they would save on developing CO2 capture, utilization, and storage projects. So much easier for long-term finance projects. Yeah, exactly. And then from a government standpoint, what's important is not necessarily which of the two models is used, but then what's done with that money. So a, a big issue in a lot of countries is that the money that is generated from, a, say, say, a CO2 tax, for example, uh, in Canada, say, where a lot of provinces put a CO2 tax um, on a lot of the, the pollution and, and the, uh, the emissions uh, from different sectors, that money uh, either goes into a pool uh, of taxes that is then distributed among different government services, or it can be actually diverted to very specific projects. And, and I, I think that that's really what needs to be done is that all the money that comes from CO2 emissions from these uh, huge industrial plants should then be rerouted to provide uh, incentives and subsidies, some kind of financial mechanism to support development of the technologies that we've been talking about today, so that those same industrial players that emit can then uh, take some of that money from from what they uh, emitted and reinvest it into very specific projects that will help them reduce the CO2 emissions uh, down the road and then valorize, utilize the CO2 for market uses. Sure, and indeed this the price of the 
of this commodity, carbon, in Europe has gone up a lot over the past uh, two years. So do you recommend investing in it now? Do you think it's uh, it's still a good investment? I think definitely over the long term, we've all seen the dynamics uh, that are happening right now, especially uh, well around the world, but especially in, in Europe and in, in the West where we are heading towards a world where uh, emissions are going to be reduced, we are going towards renewables, and a price of CO2 is going to be going up. Now, on the current phase of the uh, European emissions trading scheme, uh, you mentioned that the price has gone up uh, in the last couple of years, so to 25 euros per ton. However, for a very long time, we were at around 5 euros per ton. And this was due to many reasons, uh, partly because of the recession uh, in the late 2000s um, that reduced industrial output and thus the total amount of emissions that were actually being produced. Uh, therefore, there was no market for CO2 at the time. Um, but then after that, with things having picked back up, industrial activity having gone back up, we are starting to see more emissions, obviously, and with that, a price on CO2. So having said that, the price is definitely going to be going up in the future. Most governments, especially in developed countries, have set pretty ambitious targets for reducing their emissions and have integrated into their public planning policies uh, a CO2 price that, in many cases, as I had mentioned earlier, is going to reach 100 euros per ton by 2030, and if not, even higher than that. Sure. Well, that if it's 100 euros by ton in 2030, then we're talking um, double, twice our investment in 10 years, which is about a 18, 15% Right, if, if you it's look at good, just, the, yeah, just the market price of CO2, that's right. Then there's obviously a lot of other factors to take into account, like the R&D costs. So as I mentioned, a lot of these technologies are nowhere near as mature as our traditional fossil-based uh, production pathway technologies. So there's still a lot of money that needs to go into developing these. And then a lot of times the upfront capital investment costs of, of building a, a large uh, CO2-based uh, facility uh, to produce these products uh, can be quite expensive. How is it that you know that at around 100 euros per ton, uh, synthetic fuels might make economic sense? So we've done at NAO quite a bit of modeling on different technological pathways where we take different um, business cases, and it really depends on on very specific cases, where you get your CO2 from, what country you're in, where, what your source of energy is, uh, what the incentives are to invest. But we do techno-economic modeling to see what the overall price of production would be. So what we call actually the levelized cost of energy or levelized cost of, of product, which takes into account the capital investment up front, but also the amortization of that investment over time, uh, the operational expenditure, OPEX, uh, over time, as well as what we're producing over time, the value of that, and if that might increase, including a CO2 price. Um, and then uh, we look at, over the lifetime, is that economical versus a traditional fossil-based product. And we look at what the break-even point actually is with that CO2 price integrated to get uh, on the same playing field as the fossil-based products. Okay, sure. And and we think that about uh, 100 euros a ton is... Again, it, it really depends on a case-by-case -case basis and it depends on uh, the scenario that we're, we're looking at, what country we're in, what our electricity source is. So all I'll say is that we have seen cases where 100 euros per ton is feasible. Um, but then we've also seen cases where we're in the hundreds of euros or even thousands of euros per ton. For example, if your electricity source is 
very dirty, then you're obviously going to have to pay for CO2 compensation on that dirty electricity source. And then on the flip side, if you want a, a very green energy source, there's still a lot of countries where renewable energy, green energy is quite expensive. So if we go back to our electrolysis example, where we're producing the hydrogen we need to combine with the CO2, if that electricity we're putting into the electrolyzer is very expensive, then obviously that's going to impact the whole production cost of our CO2-based product. Well, I suppose the good news is that the cost of renewables and the wholesale price of electricity is is going down. Right. So that's the other side of the story, along with increasing CO2 price and targets and objectives over the next few years, is the market dynamics of renewable energies, the uh, continually decreasing price of solar panels, of wind turbines, um, and of other sources of uh, green energy. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Sebastian. It's been very interesting to talk to you. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I think it's a very interesting subject that we should all uh, uh, keep following for the next few years. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast, recorded and produced in Paris by Paul David Evans with help from Sirvash Barhoda. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or whatever you are listening. And if you're an undergraduate student and you're interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.